bow with me, church. Father, so often on Sundays we we sing about your goodness, and, and that's right because you are you're good. You're good in spite of our weaknesses and our brokennesses. You're good even when we don't care to acknowledge you or to give you the respect that you deserve. Father, we, uh, when we think about your, your goodness, sometimes we're reminded that, that really we aren't all that good. Even though, Lord, you're faithful and you're consistent to be with us, sometimes, Father, we're kind of, we're inconsistent. Sometimes, Lord, we, we aren't as faithful as we're called to be. Lord, you love us completely and forgive us unconditionally, and yet, Lord, we struggle to love other people unconditionally, and we we sort through forgiveness, but it's difficult for us. Lord, you, you care for us even, even when we're running away from you. And sometimes, Father, even though that we have that kind of love and concern for us, we, we, have a hard time, we have a hard time making a place for you in our life. Father, we just ask you to forgive us of that. And I just pray this morning, Father, as we open your word, that you might open our hearts to not only understand it, but to listen to what it is that you're saying to us. Father, we are so thankful to be a part of this family, to be a part of this church, to be able to, to worship together with, with people that love you, Lord, to know that we're not on this road alone. We have people that we're walking with. Father, I just pray that, that you would just build up this church and build up this body. Be with everyone who's here today, Lord, and those who are watching online. Just help us, Lord, to listen to where you're going with us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, we've been taking a trip along with Jesus, a six-month trip in Jesus' life. For us, it's going to be more like eight weeks or so. And we, we started this trip in, in Luke, the ninth chapter, at this, at this kind of pivotal phrase where, where Jesus, or where Luke records that Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. And we look at that and we're like, okay, that's nice. But what we understand when we look through that text and, and what, we, what we begin to realize is what Jesus understood, and that is that his role was changing. He was no longer the primary missionary. He was now the trainer of those who would, gonna, who would assume that responsibility. So for the next few months, Jesus would be working with the disciples, and then he would go and ascend back to the Father, and it would be the disciples that would have to carry on the rest of the mission of the church. And so because Jesus changes that, he's very intentional on, on the time that he spends, and Luke is intentional on the stories that he selects to kind of talk about the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in this period leading up to the cross in Luke 22. And there's, just, there's a ton of stuff in, in between those chapters. We're just kind of hitting the highlights of that. But if you remember last week, we, we kind of look, took a look at the beginning portion of Luke, the 12th chapter. And in Luke, the 12th chapter, Jesus is preaching a sermon. And we nicknamed it the Sermon on the Crowd. We, we did that because you, you'll notice that there's huge crowds that are gathering on Jesus. This may have been one of the most popular periods of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus chooses, in the midst of this huge crowd, to pull his disciples in and to really teach them and say, hey guys, listen, here's the deal. Don't be fooled by this big crowd. Don't be sucked in by the influence of the crowd and what they want from you and what they need and what they demand. Recognize that God has to always be number one. And, and so he did a lot of teaching through that first part of, of the 12th chapter of the book of, of Luke to the disciples and really to us 
on, on how to manage that, the expectations of the culture around us. But then he begins to speak directly to the crowd. And this morning we're going to pick up in the, in the first few verses of chapter 13. This sermon kind of runs through the ninth verse or so of chapter 13. And we're going to pick up on, this, on these first few verses because Jesus deals with something very specific that you and I have to deal with as well. And I think we can learn a lot from it. A lot of you guys probably know this, and it's just kind of burned into our mind, but today, or this week, is the one-year anniversary of the great quarantine of 2020, all right? Now, I don't know how you feel about the quarantine of 2020. Some of you are like, I loved it. I'm ready for the quarantine of 2021. Uh, others of you are like, that was terrible. I hope they never do that again in my lifetime. But regardless of what you thought about it, it affected everybody. Uh, there, there was a, a long period of time where there were no church services, there were no civic activities. We did not have ball games, really, if you remember that. And we finally kind of started sprinkling some things back in. It doesn't look anything like what we experienced before. I, I was visiting with a, with a buddy of mine, and he was watching a, a football game on the NFL, the NFL Network. And he said, I, I didn't watch any live or games this year. He said, I just watched old games on the NFL Network. I'm like, why did you do that? He said, football is not football if you don't have a crowd, Jason, right? And it's true, right? That, that group, that, the, the, the excitement, the energy, that's part of why we like those kinds of things. And, and there's a lot of things that changed in our own minds in 2020 as well. How we looked at, how we look at danger and, and uncertainty as a people, as a group of people. Now, Jesus is about to be probed to get a, his response to a very, well, a very difficult situation. Well, let's, just, let's just read it together, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about this as we work through it. So we're in Luke, the 13th chapter. We're going to pick up in verse number one. You can follow along in your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen. It says, there were some present at that very time, and remember, this is a huge crowd of people, big sermon right here who told him about the, the uh, Galileans. In our first service, I was saying the Galatians, all right? So it's very possible that I'll say the Galatians again. You guys just forgive me. I'm not good at getting up at five in the morning here. All right, so, um, so at, 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 at that time, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galatians whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. All right, now, now you kind of catch this right here just so you know what's going on. This is pretty gruesome, I, I realize, but apparently there were some Galatian worshipers at the temple. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but they're at the temple, and something went down, and, and by, before it was finished, their blood was mixed with the blood that they were offering to God as an atoning sacrifice on the altar. This is an atrocity, all right? And I don't want us to lose track of where we are right here. There's a only a few reasons why people bring up this kinds of things, right? Uh, some of us are news junkies here today. Some of us don't like news. Some of us tune in every day. Some of us have decided to tune out. But when people bring a current event like this to a guy that's delivering a message or preaching, they want Jesus's input on that. They want Jesus's reaction. Jesus, what do you say? about this, that, or the other. And if you watch the news, you see that happen a lot, right? Uh, a news reporter will walk up to some public figure, stick a microphone in their face, tell us what you think about what's going on in Washington this week, right? And that's part of the challenge of being a public figure is you've got to be able to have already thought that through enough that you can talk off, off of script and, uh, and hold a conversation and let that person know what it is that you really think about what's going on. And so that's the kind of thing, this is, this is first century uh, AD kind of stuff right here, no TV or microphone, but that's the kind of thing that's happening right here, right? So they're coming up and they're saying, hey, Jesus, give us some commentary on what you think 
about this whole, this whole event that happened in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to read what Jesus responds, and then we'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse number two, <clears throat> pardon me. And he answered them, do you think that these Gal uh, Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's kind of an interesting response right here, right? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of curious that Jesus would come back that way, but, but that's exactly what we get out of Jesus right here, a very intriguing kind of response. You're going to respond to this in some way, and I think we probably expected for Jesus to maybe come back and say, well, that's, that's, that's an atrocity. We need to throw down the Roman government. There were certainly some in Jesus' little party that would have liked to have seen that happen. Uh, he, Jesus maybe was expected to, to defend Pilate or, or maybe to call Pilate out. You're, he's a monster and he's not to be trusted, right? There's a lot of things that a public figure could say, but Jesus comes back with a seemingly completely unrelated response. I want you to know this morning, and I think that you know that, Jesus is not taking a pass right here on the debate over human suffering. But Jesus is changing our perspective you know this from Scripture, right? But let me just remind you that the idea of the gospel is that our minds might be transformed, right? That, that we might begin to look at the world and think about things differently. And, and when, when we're reading through Scripture and we begin to think about things differently, when we begin to have what the Bible calls the mind of Christ, when we begin to consider things how Jesus would consider them, that means we're growing spiritually right here. So Jesus has asked this question and rather than responding directly about the actual event, Jesus chooses to do something very, very different. Now, Jesus is also going to, in a moment, we'll take a look at this. He's going to talk about uh, another disaster that happens, a, a tower that falls and, and kills 16 people. And, and he's going to kind of build off of this uh, what his main uh, perspective or his point on this is. But between these two kind of events, if you will, we really see the vast majority of, of the human suffering that we find in the world kind of laid out. In the, in the Pilate event, this killing of these Galatian Christians, these Galilean, there we go, these Galilean Christians and then mixing their blood with the blood on the, on the altar and, and all the, the craziness that went along with that, um, we, we, we see that there's just a lot of well, human moral evil is what I call it, where we are broken. We are a broken people. And, and we don't stop to realize, but, but the Word of God, Christianity, has fundamentally shaped how we think about violence in this country. This morning in the first session, there was a, a missionary that was here that works um, in India and other places around the world, and he was talking about one of their, one of their evangelists was uh, stabbed in the neck and in the hand defending his wife while walking home from a church service last week, I think it was, or the week before. And, and when he said that, he was saying that rather normally because those kinds of things happen in a lot of places in the world. Violence is a common thing. I've been in, in, in Latin America and seen people who were shot. They're just laying on the street. Everyone's just walking around them, keeping right on going. In the United States, we, we pull back from that because whether or not we want to admit it, our code of conduct, our moral foundation is based on the Ten Commandments. And one of those is thou shalt not Kill, right? So we are, we, are, we, are, we are repulsed morally when somebody takes another life. 
But that's not like that if you don't have that moral foundation. In fact, Jeremiah says something very, very important that I think all of us need to remember this morning. It's in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, and it says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, you all have had a deceitful friend once in a while, right? You've, had, you've known somebody who's deceitful. You went to, went to go buy a product from a deceitful salesperson, right? And the idea there is that they're, they're going to tell you about all the good and, and not mention the bad, or, or they're going to try to sell you on something. And Jeremiah, who is a prophet to a group of people who are very, very broken, said, look, your heart is the most deceitful thing you'll ever run into. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Well, there's one person that knows our heart better than we do, and that's the Lord, right? And, and when, we, when we begin to read Scripture, and that's why we talk about this all the time, guys, but when we are in the Word, the Word kind of acts like a mirror. And we, we, we look at that and we say, oops, that's not Jason, or oops, that is Jason, depending on what the passage is. And we get a reflection of ourselves. This is the standard. Do I live up to the standard? The problem is, and, and, and that's kind of the problem with moral, with moral inconclusiveness, I guess you would say. If there's not a standard, then all of us are just kind of left up to do what's right in our own eyes, right? Well, I think I'm a pretty good guy. And what Jeremiah was reminding us is, is all of us think we're really good people because our heart is lying to us. So we look at Pilate and we're like, oh, that Pilate was a, was a thug. And he was. He was a terrible person. Yes, he was. But you know what? You and I have that, some of that same tendency within us. And if we don't watch it, that can begin to control us as well. So that's kind of the first part of things is that, that moral, just moral brokenness that we, that we find in all of ourselves and then it's definitely in the world. And it causes people to do really awful, terrible things to other people. And sometimes we wonder why. Why would you do that? And, and there's not really a good answer sometimes. The second group of things, in this case is the, the tower that falls and it kills 16 people, just reminds us that we live in a, in a fallen world. Sin and the fallen creation around us have a real consequence on us. When, when Adam and Eve naively ate of the fruit of the tree and they didn't understand that what they were really ushering into this world was death, they understood that kind of, but they didn't really understand that practically, right? What they didn't understand is that everything about this world becomes ultimately defined by one thing. All of our existence is defined by one thing. We don't like to think about that. But we all know somewhere in the back of our mind, someday, unless the Lord comes again, I'm going to die. Romans, the eighth chapter, is an awesome chapter in the Bible, incidentally. It follows Romans 7. And Romans 7, you've got to read Romans 7 to really understand Romans 8. Romans 7, Paul put, lays out, we're awful, terrible people. <laughs> and I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. What a wretched man am I. And then Romans 8 starts where he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful answer to a morbid problem that all of us have, right? But, but in the latter part of Romans 8, Romans 8 and verse 22, Paul reminds us that everything we see is affected by sin. It's affected by this, this disease of death and, and of suffering. In fact, he puts it like this. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not just creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. 
And this is kind of technical because Paul writes like that. But what he's simply saying is, is look, guys, all of us feel this pressure. That, 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 that sin and death just kind of weighs things down. It sucks the joy and the life and the excitement out of things. And, and, and it's that thing that we don't like to think about. But if we're not careful, death may visit today. So how is Jesus going to address this initial question? What do you think about this horrible thing that happened in Jerusalem? Well, here's how Jesus chooses to address it. He chooses to ask some powerful questions. And then he explains those questions with a powerful parable. And that's where we're going to go the rest of the morning. So let's read how Jesus continues. And what we'll pick up in verse 2 again, just to kind of get this. So they, they tell him, of course, hey, this terrible thing happened in Jerusalem. Pilate massacred these people, apparently. Their blood was mixed with their sacrifice. And then Jesus asks them a question back. Do you think these, Galile these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, let's be honest. Jesus is addressing a preconceived idea that these people dealt with at this time, right? And I would say that it probably still exists in the world today. That is the idea that if bad things happen to you, that you must be doing something wrong. If your life isn't a bed of roses, then you have some kind of a sin issue. This is an ancient idea. I think it's probably an ancient idea that Satan likes to sow. Into, into, into our minds. Remember Job in the Old Testament story of Job, contemporary of Abraham, right? And, and he's, he's just an, an absolutely amazing moral character. Um, so much so that when Satan comes before God and why that happens and how that happens is a story outside of understanding. But when Satan comes before God, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like, like him. He is blameless and upright in all that he does. Now, that's pretty impressive if God's bragging on you, right? I mean, you know, if, if your mom brags on you, well, that's given. But when God brags on you, that's something to pay, take, pay attention to. And of course, Satan says, oh, he just does it because you spoil him. So take away his stuff and, and he'll curse you. And he doesn't. And then Satan said, well, it's because he's selfish. Take away his health and he'll curse you. And of course, he doesn't. But because of all these things that happen, Job, who doesn't know any of this, just knows that one day he was blessed by God and living the life. The next thing he knows, all of his possessions are gone. His family is taken and his health is gone and he's sitting outside of his house in the dust scratching himself with pieces of his pot of pottery and his wife says why don't you just curse God and die literally Satan has stripped everything away from Job except one thing and that's his relationship with God and then he brings a few of his close friends over and the close friends sit about and they stare at Job for a considerable amount of time and finally when they start to talk what do they say to Job well Job you are obviously a terrible person because we know that bad things only happen to bad people. Now, Jesus is pushing back at this. He said, do you guys think that those, those Galileans were worse than the other people in Galilee? Or do you think, and then he continues on, or, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. <laughs> Jesus answers that question, right? So there's a, a cycle of questions. I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, when Jesus repeats something, that's always something that we want to pay attention to. And in this text, Jesus twice repeats the phrase, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus didn't go for the comforting response. The comforting response would have been something like, well, that sure is a shame. 
Or you know, there they were just trying to worship God and they were cut down. That pilot sure is a, is, is a, is a thug. And all those things would be, would be appropriate responses. Um, there, there's, no, there's no question. Uh, Pilate was, a, was known to be a very notorious person. Josephus tells us about a lot of things that Pilate did. This is not recorded, um, but you can get a good idea of who Pilate is from Josephus' writings, and he's not the kind of guy you want to cross. He's certainly not the kind of guy you want to have as a governor of your city. All right, he did not mess around. He preferred the Roman strong arm tactic and he was rather creative at employing it, um, which probably shows that Pilate was not quite right um, upstairs. But, but and, and we know the Galatians, they were kind of rowdy, rebellious sort of people. <laughs> they did pick a, a fight now and again. Um, but Jesus seems to ignore all those things and, and he just goes to the, to the heart of the issue. And he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, I want you to understand, most of you guys have already got this. You're way ahead of me this morning. But notice what Jesus is doing here. Everyone has said, said, what about these people that died? And Jesus knows a few things about these people, and then he brings up another story, right? The Tower of Siloam that fell. He knows a couple things about these two stories. These two stories happened somewhere else. These two stories happened to other people. The fate of all the people in these two stories have already been sealed. But Jesus is not talking to people who a tower is about to fall on, or at least at that moment are about to be massacred by a, by a crazy governor living in Jerusalem. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people that have gathered together to listen to him preach, and he recognizes something that I think we should grasp, and that is that there are more important things to talk about than the news. There's more important things to talk about than the current gossip point. What Jesus came that day concerned about is where will you, that person that he was looking at in the eyes, where will you spend eternity? Where, where are you with God? We, we all kind of try to figure out how we're going to die or when we're going to die. Some people ask that question. If you could know when you were going to die, would you know? And I've decided firmly, I do not want to know that, all right? Um, but, uh, but some of you would be like, yeah, I'd like to know. I don't know if it matters. God doesn't tell us. That probably means it's best for us not to know. But, but Jesus wants us to ask ourselves that question. Am I, am I ready? We live in an uncertain world, guys. And, and we're not promised tomorrow. And Jesus is reminding these people this. They came and said, tell us your opinion about this situation. And Jesus said, let me ask you, are you really ready if that was you? Paul wrote this in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and I think this is a powerful thing for us to remember. This is kind of a part of an interesting little bit of scripture right here. It's a part of a, what we think an early hymn in the early church. If you read it in Greek, it kind of has a lyrical, rhyming sort of a feel to it. Paul quotes it, and apparently he knows it, and apparently the church knows it, because um, he's using that as kind of a teaching tool right here. It says, therefore, it says, verse 14 of Ephesians 5, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's kind of a neat idea of the rebirth that happens when we become a Christian, right? Looking back to the resurrection of Jesus, and we're all kind of thinking about that right now this time of year in particular. But then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, but look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, was there anything wrong with Jesus and the others having a discussion about this massacre or this incident in Jerusalem? Probably not. 
But Jesus was going to make the best use of this opportunity. He was going to maximize the impact of his time in this moment. And so he said, ah, let's not talk about people that are away from here in situations we have no control over. Let's talk about something that we do have control over in a situation that's right in front of us. Am I ready? Are you ready if your name should be called today? Now, you might read through this and you might think, well, you know what? Jesus is not very compassionate right here. <laughs> you know, maybe a kind word or a gentle hand would be, would have been a better way to respond. And we're not in a place to question Jesus' response. But, but let me just say that, that sometimes compassion looks different than just, oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes that's just us getting out of a situation easily, Right? I think Jesus was incredibly compassionate right here because Jesus knew something that we can't fully comprehend. Jesus knew that in the moment that that tower fell, in the moment that those people were offering their sacrifices and apparently they were cut down mid-sacrifice, as terrible as that whole image is, whatever that was, Jesus knew something. Their eternal place was sealed, right? And Jesus knows how terrible destruction will be for those who are not repentant. Jesus knows just how awful things are without salvation. Jesus is coming here and he's saying, look guys, let's not get distracted away from the real important issue. The real issue is, have you repented? Are you willing to change your ways? Now, if Jesus had left it there, it would have been a powerful question. But Jesus chose to apply that using a parable, and I'm glad that he did. We're going to close with that this morning, as Jesus did, because each day we're given an opportunity to grow. Maybe you're sitting in church this morning, and you're saying, you know what, Jason, I, I'm not there. I, I, <laughs> if, if the Lord called me today, I don't know. I don't know if I would be ready. Well, we don't have to stay there. That's great that you're honest about that, and that's great that you've come to that realization, okay, I need to tighten up and do better. I need to change. I need to take care of the sin problem in my life. Maybe I need to give my life to the Lord and be, and be buried in the waters of baptism so I can be filled with that spirit and have God's help to move me forward, whatever the case may be. Th those things all might be true, but today is an opportunity, and that's what I think Jesus wanted these other people to see. Those people in Jerusalem and at the tower, they no longer have an opportunity to change their eternal destiny, but you do. You do. So, so he, he tells this parable in verse number six, and we'll just talk about this parable and we'll wrap up with this as we, as we close today. Luke 13, verse six. And he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. Now, we got to stop there for just a second because this is kind of a weird situation. All right, I'm not big on, uh, I'm not a vine person, but a vineyard generally has what in it? Grapes or at least vines, right? It's named that, vine yard in English, right? Uh, so you've got this vineyard, which is a place for grapes, right? It was like that then too. And what do we have planted in the vineyard? We have a fig tree. One of these is not like the others, right? And we're wondering, wait a second here, Jesus. What do we got going on? Did Jesus just mix up his agricultural terms? I don't think so, all right? I think Jesus is making a very real point right here because a fig tree is not something you would naturally put in the middle of a vineyard. Vineyards were in that, especially in, in, in Palestine, they were the, the best soil was preserved for a vineyard because grapes need, need a, a fairly... A fairly uh, 
fairly rich type soil to do the best. Um, and, uh, and a tree like this, and the other thing is, is that, that in order to make grapes, you have to have water, right? And, and Palestine's a very arid place. You wouldn't put a, a fig tree in a, in a vineyard because the, the fig tree's gonna pull a lot of the water out of the ground. Secondly, you wouldn't put a fig tree in a vineyard because the canopy's gonna grow up and it's gonna shade your grape plants or grape vines, which is not gonna allow them to do near as well. You need water and sun to make good, uh, to make good grapes. And that fig tree is taking two of those things, not to mention the fact that the fig tree is just a nice bird sanctuary. And so all these birds are gonna come, sit in the leaves of the fig tree and pick your grapes when they're, when they're ripe for harvest, right? So you don't put a fig tree in a vineyard. But that's exactly what Jesus said. He said there was a vineyard and there was a fig tree in it. What was Jesus saying? This is what I think Jesus was saying. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into this. But I think what Jesus was saying is this. We don't belong where we are. In case you guys don't know yet, we're the fig tree. And Jesus is telling us that we've been planted in a place that we don't belong we should be here or there, but we should not be in his vineyard, in his yard for his produce. But that's exactly where God has put us. We don't deserve it. We're not supposed to be there. We don't look like the things around us. We're not vines. But God said, I want you to be there, and I'm going to put you here. You ever been in a place that you didn't deserve to be? Well, every one of us today that are in church are in a place where we don't deserve to be. If we're in the family of God, we are in a place that we don't deserve to be because there's nothing really about us that looks like God. We're not holy. We don't have that complete loving ability. We don't forgive completely. We struggle with selfishness. We, you, list it, you list it, and we probably, one of us is fighting with it in here this morning, right? We're broken and people, and yet God said, no, I, I want you in my personal garden. I want you to have a seat at my table. I want you to be a part of my family. And Jesus is just reminding us of this. We're fig trees planted in a vineyard. We have done way better than we ever deserve to do. And when God shows up, and that, that's the, the owner of the property here, and I think Jesus is using as a type of God in verse number seven. And he said to the vine dresser, who is Jesus, just to explain some of these characters for you, Look, for, for three years now, I've come and I've sought fruit from this fig tree, and I find none. Now, he's probably waited a good long time. He probably planted it three years or so. I don't know how long you wait for figs, but they don't come right away, right? So you plant the tree, and you, you prop it up, and you water it, and you take care of it. You put it in a place where it's, <laughs> it's getting a lot of resources that it doesn't deserve, right? And you grow, and you watch it. And then, like, year three, you think, well, maybe I'm going to have a fig on my fig tree. You come look at your fig tree, no fig. Year four, he comes, no fig. Year five comes, no fig. Year six, he comes. For three years, at least, he came year after after year after year, looking for figs, he found nothing. And so he has a solution. It's a very, very agrarian sort of solution, but it's a good one. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Oh, you might say, well, Jesus, that's a little, little rough right there in this story. But Jesus is describing the Father, and he's saying the Father is patient, but he doesn't like to be empty-handed. 
You know, there's a couple other parables in the scripture that kind of build on this, right? When Jesus talked about the parable of the talents, you remember that? The king going to a far country, kind of the same idea right here. He divides up his property among three different guys, and, and he says, invest this, and when I come back, I want it. And, and so the guys, two of them invest it, one of them buries it in the ground. And when it comes back, the, the other two bring the initial, invest, or the initial money plus the profit that they've made from it. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the third guy comes and he just brings the talent that he was given, the one talent. And he's like, here it is, it's in a jar. I knew that you demanded uh, what you gave back. And so here it is, I've kept it perfectly for you. I buried it in the ground. And of course, God was just angry about that, right? God wanted to see growth. It's kind of a consistent theme throughout the whole of the Bible right here. And so, so Jesus said, God comes, it's not growing. God's solution to that is cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? There's better things we can do with this spot in our vineyard, like maybe grow grapes, right, than try to grow a fig tree. Now, this is not that the tree is dead, guys. I don't want you to get this. Confused. It's not that it's incapable of producing. As Jesus describes it, this tree is big and green and beautiful with luscious leaves. It's sitting in a perfect place. It's being cared for. It hasn't, it's had the proper care and the proper feeding. The problem with this tree is that it's just sitting there marking time. It's like a lot of us. It's alive. It's breathing but it's not really going anywhere. Can I ask you this morning to ask yourself this question? What is your purpose in life? What is your purpose for drawing breath, for eating food, for taking up space in the world today? A lot of people would say, well, I, I'm, here to, I'm here to be with for my family or I'm here to enjoy things, right? I, I want to I I accomplish certain things. I, I'm maybe here to invent something or make something or, or make the world a better place. What if you were to ask God that same question? God, why, why am I in this world right here? Why am I in the place where I am right now? Would God answer that a little differently? I, I'm assuming that he would. I think in my life he certainly would. And that's a hard question to ask. You know, I'm alive, and I have a better place than I deserve, but am I producing fruit? Am I producing the fruit that God wants me to produce? You know, if you come up and ask me this question, and I had to answer it honestly before the Lord, I would probably have to tell God, no, I'm not producing up to my capacity right here. God, I, I, there's a lot more that I could be doing no, I am not accomplishing the things that I, all the things that I need to accomplish. I'm doing some stuff, but I certainly am not where I know I could be. And if the story stopped right here, it would be one of the most depressing stories in the Bible because we would look at it, there's a person that had an opportunity a lifetime, but they didn't take it and they were cut down and replaced. But the parable doesn't stop there. And the hope of this sermon is really found in the final part of this parable because what we see next is a gracious opportunity. Read with me. In verse number eight, and he answered him, and the he here, just because I know I'm, I've chopped this up, so I'm keeping you all track on the characters. The he here is the vine dresser or the person that kind of represents Jesus. And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I, I dig around it and I put manure and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
God is standing here at this tree and he's like, I've come here three years. I've been patient. It's not done anything. And yeah, it should have done something in three years, right? Cut it down. And Jesus steps in and says, look, look, here's why. Why don't we try this? Give me just one more year. I'm going to till up around it. I'm going to kind of disturb its sanctuary right here. I'm going to pile some stinky stuff around it. It's not going to smell very good, but that stinky stuff's going to soak down and it's going to provide it the nutrients that it needs to start shooting up and growing. And I'm confident that in a year from now, you're going to come back and you're going to find fruit hanging on that tree. But if you don't it's your vineyard it's your garden it's your ground go ahead and cut it down (laughs) guys this is the most powerful thing about about the grace of Jesus Christ because most of us should have got it a long time ago we're planted in a place where we don't belong we've been given a gift that we don't deserve we should have been doing something but even when we're not doing something Jesus said just give me a little bit more time because I know that they've got it in them I know that they can do better I know that they can accomplish something and that's really the key thought right here if we're not producing where we're supposed to today if we know that there's not that fruit hanging from our life that we need that needs to be there you have today that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying look those guys story is sealed but your story isn't finished yet and if you don't like the way your story's written so far you have today and you can start to change that story right now repent unless you likewise perish change direction right now Galatians the fifth chapter in verse 22 kind of answer a question that maybe some of you are asking okay Jason I'm convinced I need to have fruit but what is that fruit what what exactly are we talking about I don't think I can grow figs and you can't right but you can grow fruit that is equally as sweet and and Paul reminds us of what that fruit looks like in Galatians the fifth chapter picking up in verse 22 most of you probably have heard this before many of you have it memorized he says but the fruit of the spirit is and then he goes into lists love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then he finishes by saying, and against such things there is no law. These items will never be illegal. No one is ever going to come and say, there is way too much love in the world. There are way too many patient people in this place. That's never going to happen, guys. He said, if you want to know what the Spirit looks like when it's working in your life, if you're sitting in this seat today and you're thinking, Jason, am I growing fruit? Ask yourself this. Think back a year ago to now. Am I a more loving person? than I was a year ago. If you don't know what that looks like, Paul also defines that for us, thankfully, in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Talks about how important it is in the first section, and then in the second section, he comes through, and he says, love is, and he lists all the attributes of love right there. Am I a more loving person now than I was, than I was a year ago? Do I have joy in my life more now than I did before? Am I at peace in a bigger way now than I used to be? Am I patient Am I kinder than I once was? How about this one? Am I faithful? Can can people depend on me? Can God depend on me? Are my routines faithful routines or am I kind of just wishy-washy? How I feel today is kind of what I'm going to do. Am I gentle? Do I have self-control? I know repentance is not a fashionable word in our world today, guys. 
No one likes that. And if you don't know what the word repentance means, it simply means to change, to change direction. Because the truth is that for most of us, we spend a great deal of time and energy pursuing us, what I like, what I need, what I want, what I think is right. And repentance is when we begin to turn that, that, that perspective around. And we begin to ask ourselves, rather than what do I want, we say, what does God want? When we, rather than ask ourselves, what do I like, we ask ourselves, what does God like? Rather than what do I need, we say, God, God what do you need out of me today? Right? Rather than what makes me feel comfortable or makes me feel good, we, we say, God, what is it that, that brings you glory? What makes you feel good? What is it that you want from me? A lot of us, we know that there's portions of our life that are going the wrong direction. You know? <laughs> have to be rocket scientists to figure that out. For most of us, we know there's things that need to change. And here's the great news this morning. You can, because we're all still here. Right? Terrible things may be happening in other places in the world, but up until this moment, God has spared our lives. So if there's growth that needs to happen, if there's some turning up of our life that needs to occur, if maybe a little stinky stuff has to come in so that it gives us the fuel to grow, God said, I'm willing to let that happen because I want to see the fruit of the Spirit hanging from your branches. Here's what Jesus was really saying to that good-hearted and well-intentioned person that said, Jesus, have you heard what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus is saying, I'm not near as interested about how the story ends as about how the story was lived. Yeah, all of us are going to die someday. But what did we do while we were alive? What did we do for the Lord? How did we live our life? That's what really matters. One way or another, we're all going to go. It may be that a tower falls on us. It may be that we die in a persecution. Or we might die 95 years old, surrounded by our family and friends in quiet, peaceful bliss. I don't know how we're going to go. Jesus said it doesn't really matter because that's the end of the story. But what really matters is what you did in this world up until that point. That's what I want you to look at. Repent, lest you likewise perish. We serve a good God, don't we? That gives us a second chance after a second chance. And even when we're in a place that we don't deserve and we're still not doing what he wants us to do, <laughs> he said, it's okay. Let's stir things up a bit. Let's pour in some good nutrition. Let's get this going because you have today and today is all you need to make a difference in your life and a difference in the world. Maybe there's some of us that are here today that say, you know what, I've never started this journey, Jason, and I need, I need to be baptized into Christ. I need to have my sins washed away. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I can't do this alone. This is a great time to do that. Maybe there's some of us that are here today that are just like, you know what, I'm that tree. I'm planted in the middle of a perfect place. God has poured into my life and blessed me. I'm green and healthy and fat and wonderful, but I don't have His fruit hanging from my branches, and I need to change that. You can. God wants you to do that. He will give you the strength to do that. You have today to start that process and that, that, that journey. We're going to stand together, church. If you need prayer today, you know you can always come catch one of us afterwards. If you need to make a decision for Christ or just want to come and step out and say, I need this, you're welcome to do that as we sing.